We're glad all of you here have taken an interest in this session on the topic of corruption in China, which is not surprising, perhaps, given the wave of anti-corruption measures in China in the last couple of years. The two experts with us today will analyze and discuss about the recent trends in domestic corruption. Dr. Mei-Ling Burney is Assistant Professor of International Deve Development at the LSE and is well known for her concept of the rule of mandate system in China. Professor Li Chengyan is Professor of Government at Peking University and is a leading expert in the field of clean government construction in China. Professor Li will commence with a speech followed by a discussion session with Dr. Bernie. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a warm welcome to Professor Lee and Dr. Bernie. Gowe 我们到了纽，我们到了伦敦也讲公平嘛，是吧？第二个呢，刚刚沉浸在美好的中国传统文化的记忆中，甚至又进入一个过春节的状态，马上又转到了我们心情很沉重的一个话题——中国的反腐败
给予强烈的支持。同时呢，国外也在关注，全世界都在关注中国的反腐败。最近我看到，哈佛大学的麦克法夸尔教授就到了香港去，在香港大学讲反腐败。同时呢，我又被美国的宾夕法尼亚大学邀请去讲中国的反腐败。同时，我在很多国家的媒体也出现在评论中国的反腐败，包括《纽约时报》啊。整个这个形式都可以看出来，中国的反腐败是一个国际的合作，是一个大家都应该了解、认知的一个重要的领域。因为你现在要研究中国政治经济的发展，你不去研究反腐败，你不可能够研究到根本的实质。所以这个问题的确在世界产生了影响。那么我要讲两个方面，一方面我要感谢在座的每一位，不管是专家学者还是我们的同学朋友。关心支持中国的反腐败。第二个呢，我要表达，我要感谢会议的主办方邀请我来讲中国的反腐败。啊，我想我今天要讲的呢，三个问题，时间关系很紧，二十到二十五分钟。第一个问题就是讲中国的腐败形式特点是什么。我们讲到中国的腐败是严峻的，是复杂的这样一个形式。那么严峻复杂的特点是什么呢？怎么看呢？在这里，我首先要讲的是，我们必须承认一个严峻的事实，那就是中国改革开放三十五年的时间，在我们中央集权体制这样一个高度集权的权力推动下。我们的中国的政治、经济、社会的发展是快速的，甚至是跨越的跃进式的发展。我们要承认这个体制的作用不可避免，它的效能是相当高的。同时，在里边，我们也要感谢腐败带来的动力。腐败也是动力，也是一个润滑剂，它推动一些。官员拼命的去搞项目，尽管他有收获，但是我们的国家发展还是加速了、快速了。我们要承认这个现实，但是我不等于是肯定表扬他。我们的发展的确是惊人的，这个惊人我可以告诉你，几乎是英国的二百年这样一个跨越。很多发达国家的一百年的跨越，而我们在三十多年完成了。当然，这个完成问题特别大，最大的问题就是腐败严重的存在了。最大的问题是在发展的同时带来了腐败严重的存在。那么，到底怎么看这个腐败呢？我们在充分肯定我们的发展情况下，你们很多啊外国的专家学者，我们本国的学生同学，那当然没有问题啊。他从那里来
，你看到了中国这个奇迹般的发展了吧？的确是，但是我们也要理性的去看到腐败之严重，严重到什么形式呢？我可以告诉你，几乎到了王党王国的临界点，王党王国的临界点。你好像在英国，你不相信王党有什么可怕？还有别的党来嘛，对吧？但是，但是你别忘了，中国没有别的党啊。中国的民主党派不叫党啊。对啊，那不是严格意义的世界政党政治的政党。所以，中国没有一个政党竞争的政治生态。所以我就告诉你，中国的腐败一定会搞得中国亡党，亡党必亡国。真的，亡党必亡国。所以这个形势是严峻的，到了一个临界点，这个临界点就在十八大召开前后。十八大召开前后，中国的政治腐败占了主导。因为十八大是一个重要的换届期，在这样一个换届期里边，正好是六十多年一样到七十年的过渡。这样一个第三代的接班人上还是下，谁上谁还是下，的确是一个人员的转换、权力的更替。就不可避免出现中国政治腐败严重、政治斗争激烈。那么最主要的，他们的背后一定是经济腐败严重，然后导致政治腐败严重，严重到十八大召开前，甚至出现严重的暴力。暴力是政治斗争的最高表现形式，重庆事件就是标志，也就是说发生了爆发点，就是政治腐败，它的演化发展，在一个短时间里边，居然在十八大召开之前已经发生了爆发点，那就说明。我们十八大召开前，腐败已经搞得中国的政治生态严重恶化，恶化到亡党亡国的临界点了。这里边有几个标志，我可以和你来进行探讨。第一，中国的政治舞台上出现了严重的党管干部，严重的。买官卖官问题，党管干部出现商品化行为，这绝对是一个腐败。就是说你要上位，你要当官，你要到岗位，你必须交钱来买，否则我不会给你的。如果是这么一个局面呢，我想中国的政治生态一定异化，甚至腐败严重。比如说，我们看到那个案例。黑龙江的韩贵之案，涉及到买官卖官的人一千五百多人
不得了啊！他经营这个干部的管理，当过组织部长，当了副书记管干部，直到最后当了黑龙江省委啊、呃、黑龙江的政协主席、政省级，十年经营干部买卖一千五百多人呐、啊！我可以告诉你这个案例，我就是黑龙江人，告诉你黑龙江几乎是党的领导全部瘫痪。你不抓可以一抓全部瘫痪，坍塌式的，是吧？什么感觉呢？十三个地级市的两个一把手全部双规，六十一个县的县县的领导和韩贵之事案，整个瘫痪。为了解决这样一个瘫痪的黑龙江党的组织问题，怎么办？紧急的，在几天时间里边，从全国各地调配了近四百干部，分三批用飞机紧急空投到哈尔滨来抢救黑龙江的干部队伍。这是真实的故事哎，这样下去不得了哎，怎么办？中央给了一个抓大放小的政策，就是大的数额巨大的必须双规，小的一般就放他一马。就这样还归了五百人，最后运送过去四百多人来抢救啊！这就说明我们的干部管理出现商品化之后，给我们这个执政党带来的灾难性的打击。这是一个典型的案例。这个案例告诉我们，不是一个孤立的哈啊哈尔滨省会黑龙江的问题啊！如果用腐败黑数理论去推理，我们可以发现。同样的政治制度，同样的经济发展水平，同样的文化背景，在另外一个地方还会发生同样性质的问题。也就是说，别的省也有大量的买官卖官问题。用这样一个推理，我觉得西方国家的学者都在用，一定是正确的，在中国也适用。所以这个问题真的很严重。第二个呢，第二个特点腐败标志严重。呃，的一个特点是什么呢？就是国家利益部门化，部门利益开始个人化现象严重。我们的大央企、国企，我们很多政府部门，只要是任命的这个官员在那儿做第一把手，他就一定要控制这个部门。久而久之，这个体制创造的条件就是让他成了这个部门的家长。他在这个部门一切都可以说了算，于是乎就出现了国家利益部门化。国家很多利益、很多政策，告诉他怎么去落实执行，他有选择，利于我的就执行，不利于我的我干脆就不执行。于是就出现了严重的中央政策不出中南海，因为他可以去选择嘛。不利于我的，我凭什么要执行啊？比如说这一次我们搞大规模的审批制度的改革，你会发现很多人在抵制，因为他不想把这个审批制度砍掉，一砍掉他所有的利益都没有，所以他就抵制，最后没有办法，手把手派出督导组，一个一个去督导，你怎么去把审批制度砍下来？最后效果并不是很明显。所以，西方的学者里边就喊出一句话：“现在的政府，李克强总理是孤军宰相
就是他推不动了。所以我觉得这个现象是我们当前发生很严重的一个问题。一个国家政策不出中南海，这个国家控制和管理就出问题。接着呢，他可以把这个部门利益做大，而且又形成了一个部门的利益个人化，就是这是我的部门。我一定死死的控制，我的所有利益都从这里出来，包括我的上位，我的获得更高的权位，包括我用我的钱、用我的物去打通一些关节，来实现我不断的升迁，都可以从这里出来。所以就出现了周永康控制中石油近四十年，于是他用周石油的钱。不断的去打通一些关节，摆平一些关系，直到推着自己上位到中央常委，那就是一个一人之下，万人几亿人之上的权位呀、啊，那个权位可不得了哎，所以就造成了他入场就安全，所以呢，这样一种腐败案例，在我们很多的部门都在发生。就说明这个腐败很严重。如果我们的执政党不能控制这么大一块国家的资源，那么就意味着你的统治就可能失去经济基础。那你的统治不就带来了高风险吗？甚至是亡党亡国吗？第三个问题，我倒觉得我们应该去关注它。就是我们看到了现在司法权力严重的腐败，腐败到利益最大化。如果一个国家的司法权力腐败，腐败要靠商品交易来买卖，那这个国家这个社会啊就难以稳定，因为司法系统是一个社会发展。稳定的一个稳压器，比如说我们的平民百姓、弱势群体，他要在自己的身上出了问题，去找找到一个地方，去能够去公平公正的去说理，并且获得一个司法的支持，非常难。你要找我这个立案吗？我可以立案，但是你要交钱。立了案，你要让我给你判赢吗？那你必须要交钱。如果这样子，你想我们这个国家还能稳定吗？所以就出现了我们的一些问题都不可思议，我们的社会稳定问题越来越严重，严重到我们十八大前发生了一个奇迹。投入到社会稳定的资本、资金，高过了我们的军费。军费可以少投，国内的社会稳定不能少投。如果这样的话，那我们的这个危险也是很可怕的，知道吗？所以现在啊，我们还有一些上面的高压政策，什么专项治理啊，什么这个呃运动打击啊。等等，都会带来一些莫名其妙的一些不可思议的一些司法的问题，知道吗？你没看到为什么有的人
已经判了死刑，杀头了，最后发现判错了。问题就是我们有政治的高压，告诉他必须用运动的方式来专项的整治，叫你在一个短时间里面，你必须拿出什么样有影响力的案子，尤其是死人的案子，这个是大案，那你就有奖励，啊，你就有报酬，简直是荒唐，这是法律吗？所以呢，我们有一些说法叫稳准狠的打击啊。简直就没有法律语言，是吧？所以等等这些司告诉我们，司法腐败是严重的啊！还有我们的干部结构也出现了严重的帮派化，也不能不引起我们高度的重视。干部的结构在前面官员买卖的基础上，不可避免会发生官僚化的帮派化。就是我是什么系统的人，我就把我系统的人都提起来。我是什么什么领域，我们什么地区的这个地区的干部上来的就更多，所以就出现了严重的，比如说令吉化的山西帮、周永康的石油帮、秘书帮等等，还有周良洛的上海帮，啊不，周周陈陈陈良瑜的上海帮。是吧？陈希同的北京帮等等，在我们党内充斥十年、二十年。如果这样一种政治生态环境，我觉得我们这个领域的问题啊，就更加严重。因为我们党最忌讳的是党内搞团团伙伙、结党营私、拉帮结派，而这个问题在我们党内十分严重的存在。所以，习近平。在今年的一月十三号的讲话里边，在中纪委十八届五次全会的讲话已经提到这个问题。那，所以呢，我觉得这一些啊都值得我们去思考。还有一些我们可以进一步的来考虑，比如说网络权力资本化现象很严重。我们现在网络很发达，发达之后你会发现权力资本强力的介入，就推升了网络呢。现在问题也很严重，三个贴纸要多少钱？网络的银行有人支持，甚至一下子走到纽约的上市，纽约的华尔街上市，马云一个礼拜拿走了二百亿美元，不得了！这种网络化集聚起来的权利啊，可能会在未来几年会造成灾难。权力资本的介入一定意味着腐败，我只能点到这儿。第六个，军队建设的严重的群租化，不管组织建设、买官卖官，还是整个营房建设等等，还是军事采购，都面临到一些问题。所以这里头啊，时间关系我就不讲了。腐败形势是严峻的，这是第一个问题，是吧？时间太紧张了。第二个问题，发生这些腐败原因在哪里呀、啊？我们不能不去想吧？为什么会这样子呢？第一，一定是我们的制度出了问题。什么制度？很多很多，我只有一句话给你概括，就是高度集权的制度。什么部门都要找到一个人负责，一个系统、一个地区、一个部门都要一个人负责，整个都围着一个人转的体制。
，我可以告诉你，就是一个绝对权利，就是一个绝对权利，绝对权利，绝对腐败。第二个呢，我们的监督权利有问题，监督是缺位的，我们甚至在某些方面可以说没有监督。一个没有监督的权利，一定腐败。时间我没有能够展开，是吧？第三个，我们的干部的教育有问题。我们的干部教育呢，可能更多的是注重形式化的教育、政治化的教育、教条化的一些教育。从马克思、列宁、毛泽东到邓小平，拿出语录，拿出他们的文章。让官员去肯去学，接着让他们说得很好。如果这样的导向，你就会发现，一方面他会把好话说尽，让你感觉到他是好官；另外一方面，他一定在下面偷偷的把坏事做绝。如果是这样一个官员，你想过吗？这就形成了一个官员的教育的恶果，两面人的人格分裂形成。一定的，所以第三个原因呢又重要。第四个呢，就是文化。刚才于丹讲的文化，我们的文化在腐败面前是不抵抗的，抵抗了吗？哪个文化在腐败面前抵抗了呢？县委书记搞权力寻租，他一定觉得去适应他的需要，能够拿出钱。把他那给出来的寻租官员位置买到手，而且买到手以后还去炫耀，还又在那儿羡慕别人，自己还炫耀，还去羡慕别人，这都是不正常的文化，他自己不可能抵抗，他看到了这个问题，他只有想办法去适应他，而且不断的去适应权力寻租搞腐败，这就是我们的腐败文化助长了腐败严重的在发生。必须承认，刚才讲有一个话，你们看到了吧？中国的文化，尤其是传统文化，儒家文化，它就是一个道德文化嘛。我们的道德文化对一个人来讲就是独善其身嘛，别的事我不管，我自己事做好就行。只要我有发展，我不管国家，不管整个这个党，这就完了。所以文化有问题。最后一个，官员的性格也决定了腐败，就是长期掌握权力啊，他会形成一种形成一种性格的扭曲。长期以来他是领导，他就不把大家放在眼里，因为他知道他的官位是上面少数人决定的，他不把大家放在眼里，是因为你没决定我的命运，而少数人决定我的命运，就形成了一个不把大家放在眼里。这样一种性格，这种性格，久而久之，他可以把你的利益拿给己有，满足一点上面的利益，接着自己占有。如果是这么一个下去，就一定是性格也在助长他腐败。原因多方面，五个方面。最后一个，简单说几句：中国的反腐败正处在一个盛嚣尘上的发展期。我看你们的题目就是中国发展的研究，中国的反腐败到底向何处去？我觉得
，我们现在做的这些反腐败的案例，都是王岐山提出这样一个策略和战略，就是现在我们大量的去治标，治标治标，争取时间回头再治本。你看，我们每一年，我们都有治本的一些案例出现，比如说一年之后，十八大一年之后在。十八届三次全会上就提出了中纪委的一些改革的方案，就是治本的起点。接着今年两年了，又提出了中纪委全力不断推向一个体制机制创新的一个改革，又让我们耳目一新。那么这里边有很多没有时间给你们讲，比如说现在我们提出来的是双重领导体制，就使得我们监督的权利不仅仅在你党委书记控制下。他是在上级纪委直接领导下来实现他监督权力作用的，这个就不一样，是一个变化，知道吗？另外，他下一步还要发展，我想这个发展，我自己研究的未来希望，作为监督权力，必然这么有三步的过程。第一步是双重领导体制，第二步一定要走向垂直领导体制。监督权力一定要垂直，否则不能有效的去监督。第三步一定要走走向党内监督权力独立。如果在党内监督权力不独立，他的制约腐败还是要大大的打折扣，甚至是无效。所以，我觉得这样一个改革呢，已经预示到我们的未来。是充满了希望的。如果按照我们这个党的改革呢，我想也必然经历这么几个过程。我们要看到，你们也必须从这个角度来理解我自己的看法啊。中国共产党在中国的一党独大的领导不要改变。你们可能有些人接受不了，因为你们可能感觉到西方的多党制更好。不对，中国和西方的国情文化不同。中国真的就现在来讲，没有哪一个党能替代共产党来领导中国，来走向一个富强。你记住，不会错。真的，我有四十多年的党龄，我可以告诉你这个事实。不要以为共产党下来就天下安定了，就发展了，开什么玩笑呢？如果共产党在中国下台，我可以告诉你，一定是第二个中东之春，一定的，一定没有好下场。不管是伊拉克、利比亚还是埃及，这样一个中东之春。绝不要在中国重演。但是，共产党党内必须实现党内民主化，一定要实现中国共产党党内民主化的选举出他的党代表，一人一票。我就不相信党员是个特殊材料制成的，连这一票都不会操作吗？这一票。
非常重要，就扎实了党内的民主。接着选出党代表，党代会五年任期制，党代表再选出他的最高的常设委员会，这就是决策权力打造成功。决策权力在党内必须独立。接着，党代表要选出一个党内最高执行委员会。他在党内只管执行，不管决策，执行不了的退会党代会重新决策，这样限制制衡权力，一定会有效的推动中国发展。第三个权利，党内一定要有一个独立的监督委员会，他只管监督，不管决策，不管执行，但是他虎视眈眈的盯着决策和监督啊和执行。一定会有效的去制约党内的权利。如果这样的一种制约、制衡党内权利的话，我想中国共产党一定会有希望，朝气蓬勃的带着中国再干三十年。一定要实现这个过程。我真的相信这一点。习近平为首的新的中央领导，他带领我们这一届共产党的领导，一定会向这个方向走。到底最后怎么样，我们还可以拭目以待。但是这个希望，你们一定要放在心上，因为有了希望就是动力。你千万不要听了我的课以后，你绝望了。你绝望了，我最可怕，我就失败了。你相信，一定往这走，没有别的路可走，真的。好吧，时间已经过，谢谢大家。That was, I think that was a really, that was you're an incredibly brave person, and also have given, have given, I think the audience here. Wonderful insights into the not just the extent of what the problem is of corruption in China, but what many of the causes are, and offered what I think are actually very promising solutions if they can if they can indeed take place. And I think we agree on a lot of things.、Um, first of all, I think we agree that we need to start by looking at China and seeing the incredible things that it has accomplished. At the same time that we recognize that alongside of that has occurred a massive amount of corruption and also injustices, and I think we agree that the corruption and the injustices are the things that we would like to change, and the question is how. And of course, in terms of thinking about how, we want to know why. Why is the system like that? And what I'd like to offer today is a perspective on the system that says that the reason. The system generates both the positive things that you see and the negative things that you see is related. That it's actually the governing system of China itself that is generating a lot of these positive outcomes and these negative outcomes. And but that system can evolve. And I think we both agree: if the party were to disappear today, that that would be a disaster for China. But we also agree that if the party doesn't change the system of governing, that would also be a disaster for China. And so, what I'd like to put forward is sort of a diagnosis of the problem and an idea for how evolution can happen. And my ideas for how evolution can happen are somewhat different. 
But I also think that the, the ideas that you proposed are, are um, complementary and actually excellent ideas as well. So it just adds something, I think, to what you said. Okay, so what, what is my diagnosis? When I look at China, and when you look at China, I don't see a, part, a, a country that is just governed by arbitrary rule. Right? It's not just that leaders do whatever they want. And at the same time, we know that it's not governed by rule of law. There's not full rule of law in China, although there are laws and there's been a lot of progress made on that dimension. But it's a country that puzzlingly is governed but not governed by rule of law. And it's, so what governs it? It's not just people. What governs it is an alternative system, not just arbitrary will of different leaders. And that system is based on priorities. So what actually governs China today are priorities rather than laws and rather than men. So leaders have a lot of power in China, but they cannot do absolutely anything they want. They have to meet key party priorities, which we know traditionally have been stability, economic growth, although now environment is moving up there, um, and other key policies like the family planning policy. But these are things that leaders absolutely must get done. And other things, not only are they less important and less critical to get done, but if they interfere with the highest priorities, they should not be done. Right? And so until recently, if environmental protection interfered with economic growth, economic growth was a higher priority in most places until recently. And therefore, it was overlooked, it was okay, and it was sometimes even encouraged to not implement environmental regulations in order to promote economic growth or to attract investment. And that was fine, even though the environmental protection rules were laws, right? It was okay to overlook laws. We see the same thing happen with village elections, right? Village elections are the law of the country. Every place is supposed to have open, fair village elections. And the law is written, the law as it is written is a good law. But in fact, many places don't have elections that are open and fair, many villages. And overlooking this village elections law is okay if it's in the name of, of upholding stability. If, you know, if a local leader makes a judgment that if they had an open election, then it's likely that there might be a, a leader emerge who might bring up a grievance that would then lead to perhaps a protest or a demonstration, which would be considered destabilizing, then it's okay not to implement the law of the country, which is that there are, should be village elections. So what we see in China today is that priorities are more important than laws. They trump laws. So a system governs China. There's something systematic, right? Priorities, if we know what the priorities are and we know how they interact at the local level, we can make a prediction about what's going to happen. But what this creates is this creates a system that is better than arbitrary rule. It's better than a rule of man. And things get done. Priorities get done. But it also creates a system in which there not a large group of things can get done because you can only promote so many priorities at once because they're going to be clashing with other things and they're always going to be preventing um, the accomplishment of things that conflict with them. So standards, the standards that officials are held to in China are relative standards of accountability. They're not absolute standards as they would be under rule of law. Officials see their job as implementing key party priorities, not just because they thought of that, but because that is what they are told. Even in the, the most recent plenum on rule of law, which promoted rule of law, 
this, the major statement was first and foremost implement party priorities. Then, then next comes the public's will and then the law. Right? So even in promoting the rule of law, the law takes third tier. And so to really build a rule of law, which is necessary to accomplish both to accomplish more objectives, to be able to accomplish more than a few key priorities, to be able to accomplish lots of priorities. So building a rule of law requires moving away from this type of governing, governing with priorities, moving towards governing with laws. And I call this system of governing with priorities, I call it a rule of mandates. It's different than a rule of man, which is arbitrary rule, and it's different than a rule of law, which is governing with absolute standards, with laws. It is governing with relative standards. And the problem with governing with relative standards is that you, to do that, you need to give officials a massive amount of discretion. And when you give officials a massive amount of discretion, they can use that discretion to do good things or bad things. They can use that discretion to be corrupt. And so chasing after the problem sort of giving officials this massive amount of discretion, telling them, well, you can decide when it is that the laws will conflict with party priorities or not because you know the local situation best. We'll tell you what the priorities are, so you have to do those. But you decide how best to go about doing that. If you give officials that massive amount of discretion and then you tell them you will punish them if they do things that are corrupt, you're, you're constantly, you have a losing game, right? Because they have way too much discretion. You'll never be able to figure out everything that's going on. With relative standards of accountability, you actually have a bigger information problem than you have if you had absolute standards of accountability. Because you need to know not only what officials did, you need to know why they did it to know if they were corrupt. So for instance, if an official does, under relative standards of accountability, under rule of mandates, if an official does not implement an environmental regulation in order to promote local economic development, then that official, then that official um, would not get in trouble if they, could, if, they could, if they could justify this as something that was in order to implement a higher priority. And, but if it was simply because they got a payoff from the company, of course that's, that they would get in trouble for that. But how would you know which it is? Because the official will always say that it was because they were trying to implement the higher priority. And so it's actually, you need more information about what's going on in order to even spot corruption when it's happening. And, and this is a system in which there's actually less information because we know there are restrictions on information flow and on civil society. So what is the solution to this? The solution to this problem is first to recognize that moving from a rule of mandates to a rule of law is about switching, it's about shifting the governing system and transitioning the governing system. It's not about creating a new system from scratch. So many outsiders look at China and they say, well, we need to build rule of law. And, and they sort of think of it as building it in a vacuum, as if there's nothing else governing. But of course, there's something else governing. That something is not simply the party, that something is the priorities of the party, right? Even party members must listen to the priorities of the party. So, so the first thing is to recognize that you're adopting a system, not building a new system in a vacuum. And then in terms of what can be done, my recommendation would be first to make it laws, not priorities, govern. And in the recent plenum on rule of law, this wasn't done. But there was a, it was a, there was a movement towards making 
laws essentially into a higher priority, it's actually more important for officials' promotion and more important for officials' careers and advancement that they uphold the law. But it is still not the most important thing, and it says so in the very document that comes out of the plenum, where it says that officials should, all else equal, be given credit or have to have, have, to have held law in order to be promoted. But that's all else equal, right? So it's clearly not the most important thing. There's other things that they're principally evaluated on, and then if it's a tie on those things, then you can look at the tiebreaker, which is how lawful they were in their governing. So law actually needs, needs to be made a priority. And in practice, that can be done by changing the way that targets are written. So there, the system of priorities, this rule of mandates, is actually very formalized in China with contracts and targets and rewards and punishments, fines and bonuses that go to officials depending on whether or not they meet priorities. And those things should be tied to whether or not they meet laws not to whether or not they meet priorities. So there's actually a way to do this in practice. Second, limit the discretion that officials have. So rather than having relative standards of accountability, where whether or not you should be following the law all depends on the situation, have absolute standards of accountability. And that means that you need to give officials something realistic to implement. So you need to actually give them um, laws that are compatible with each other. And today, laws in China are often written as ideal standards. This is what we'd like to do, but we know it's not really possible. And it might conflict with other laws. So actually, in order to create laws that are realistic, you need a legislative process. And China, even within the party, does not have a true legislative process because it overpromises. It promises everyone something. And sometimes, in order for capacity, state capacity to meet promises. You can't promise everyone everything they want. And how would you create a real legislative process? Well, it turns out there are already legislative institutions in China. They just need to be activated, right? So there's people's congresses. So the people's congress should be made standing rather than just meeting occasionally during the year. It should meet constantly throughout the year. And the officials should have money and staff for them to do research on the different issues and investigations on the different issues and have different policy proposals. And they should have offices and they should have buildings. There should be a real legislature in China. And there's already the apparatus for that. So it's activating what is already in the Constitution. And third, in order to improve the information situation so that there's more knowledge of what officials are actually doing and whether or not they are, they are governing in accordance with the law, there should be more local information available. So that means opening up the media, opening up civil society. Now, all of these things are not, all these things are really important changes. They would be deep changes, but they're changes that can happen under the current system. And I would agree that the most important thing in China is that there's evolutionary and stable change. But the status quo and not doing these things is not stable. The system that China has now is stabilizing in the immediate term because high priorities get done. But a rule of mandates is destabilizing in the long term because it is illegitimate and because it can do no more than a few priorities. So these are my recommendations, and I think they, they go... The, the insight that I hope it brings to you is that China's system... It actually, China actually has a system, a rule of mandates, and that needs to evolve. Um, a rule of mandates is not a particularly Chinese system. It's an imperial system. It's a system that Britain used to govern Africa, governing with priorities. So China should not see this as sort of its style of governing. 
Rule of law with Chinese characteristics does not mean that. Rule of law with Chinese characteristics should mean actually governing with rule of law, governing with absolute standards, but those standards are obviously going to accord with the local situation. Um, so I'd just like to emphasize that this rule of mandates is not at all a Chinese system. It's a system that is associated with empires. Um, and it's a system that has worked for China to some extent, but won't in the future. But there are pathways ahead, I think. And these pathways will lead to less corruption, um, rather than a situation in which corruption is merely shifted out of high-priority areas, but actually given more scope because of the massive amount of disruption. And will lead to a situation in which more objectives are possible, more things are possible because you can do more than just key priorities. And where there's more legitimacy from the public because the public sees a just government and a just society and just standards before them. Thank you. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Unfortunately, due to the time constraint, we will not have a Q&A session. Um, for those of you who are moving on to the soft power panel, please stay here. For those of you who are attending the new direction of social policy in China, please make your way to the venue now. But lastly, can we have a big round of applause for Dr. Bernie and Professor Lee? Thank you.